The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So it's really nice to to be here with everyone. So nice to sit together in the, this beautiful quiet space. Yeah. So I'll offer some thoughts and then save some time for discussion at the end. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, I I don't know all of you super well, and it's a small group, so um, yeah, looking forward to to sharing and discussing a bit at the end. What I I spent some time this morning thinking about what I might offer, and not really, you know, knowing who would come and what people's level of experience would be. Um, I was sort of thinking about that. Uh, but I ended up choosing a topic that felt relevant to me and uh, I think relevant, hopefully, no matter how experienced people are. I think it sounds like people have experience um, and uh, we all have experience being a human being <laughs> and having a mind and probably if you're here, you know, being interested in your mind um, and so the topic, uh, basically I wanted to sort of take a step back because I think even for people who have been practicing Buddhism or mindfulness for any period of time, uh, it's really, it can be really helpful to, no matter, yeah, even if we've been practicing a long time, sort of, um, kind of take a beginner's mind and question for ourselves, well, what, what am I doing? What is the goal? What is the point of meditation, of mindfulness? So sort of like the conceptual framework that underlies practice. Um, and there are different views about this. And that's sort of one way to come at this topic is just to acknowledge that there are a lot of spiritual teachings, there are a lot um, of traditions, spiritual traditions throughout all of human history, and then even within Buddhism, there are different spiritual traditions. And even within, like, Common Ground is loosely uh, in the early Buddhism tradition, insight meditation, even within that tradition, there are different teachers and different approaches. So... uh, it can get confusing, <laughs> especially, yeah, we hear all sorts of different teachings and maybe um, maybe they contradict each other or don't quite align or some one teacher says, even with just uh, in terms of how we practice, you know, some teachers will recommend that we use an object-oriented practice like mindfulness of breathing to stabilize the attention in the mind and other teachers, um, sort of like what I offered during the guided meditation, will say that that's not so important. What's really important is that there's awareness and that the mind is aware and it doesn't matter what the object is. So I think we can't really avoid, uh, avoid this, you know, this diversity of teachings. Um, and I don't think it's bad. It's good. It's good to have, just that we have access to so many wisdom traditions and teachers is really amazing, but it can be confusing if uh, if we 
we're not sure what to do <laughs> or what to believe or if, if there is something we need to believe. And so this is not a new problem. And, and so kind of to start the reflection, um, I'm going to reference a teaching from, from the Buddha, from, the, from early Buddhism, from the Pali Canon, uh, which is pretty well known called the Kalama Sutta. And it's specifically about this point and it's a story, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the teachings in the Pali Canon, there's a story sort of associated who the people were who maybe had a question. And this was a group of people called the Kalamas. And there were a lot of, apparently at the time of the Buddha, there was a lot of spiritual activity and different teachers. And a lot of them had metaphysical views. And, and so there was a, just a lot of um, teachings going around. And so in this town, people, different teachers would come to this town and offer their teachings. And the teachers would disparage the other teachers that came through and say, no, this only my way is correct. And so you can imagine these, sounds like these people were, were sincere spiritual seekers and, uh, and they just were really confused. All these different teachers coming through, maybe charismatic, convincing Maybe their teachings made sense. Maybe they were useful. But they were each saying, this is, my way is the only way. And so, you know, all these people saying, my way is the only way, that's, that's confusing. Uh, how do we make sense of it? How do we know what to trust, what to follow, what to practice? And so that was the question these people had. And they had heard of the Buddha, or the Buddha was also stopping through. And so this is the question they brought to the Buddha. Let's, let's see what the Buddha has to say on this predicament. Um, and uh, what the Buddha tells them, I think I have it written here so I can read it. Well, I'm not finding it right away, so I'll just paraphrase it. But basically the Buddha said... It, it makes sense that there would be confusion that arises in you because of all these different spiritual teachers. And he said, here are some reasons that you shouldn't just believe in a teaching. You shouldn't believe in a teaching just because it makes sense logically, just because your teacher is the person who said it, so sort of by esteem, a respected person, um, But basically what it comes down to is uh, you should try the teaching, the practice on for yourself and see whether it leads to beneficial results. And he, he lists the, the classic three unwholesome roots. So when, when practicing this teaching, does it lead to harm and suffering in the form of greed or aversion or delusion? So these are the classic Buddhist roots of suffering. Or does it lead to non Delusion or wisdom, non-aversion uh, or goodwill or non-greed or generosity. So basically try it out for yourself and see for yourself whether it leads to harm and suffering or whether it leads to um, welfare and happiness. So this is pretty straightforward, but, but it's empowering and... Um, And it's what I have always appreciated about, um, about the Buddha's teachings is that spirit of 
that it's practical. It's really, as far as I understand, the Buddha was not uh, that interested in metaphysical views or um, describing the ultimate reality even. Um, but his, as the Buddha said once, all of his teachings were for the purpose, a pragmatic purpose of addressing the question of suffering and the end of suffering. And uh, so that's kind of the framework that I wanted to offer, just kind of remembering some of these teachings that orient us so that, because there's so many teachings in Buddhism, in early Buddhism, outside of that tradition, and they, they may be useful. So it's not even that if, you know, oh, I'm an early Buddhist, so I only will read books of early Buddhism, but it's how do, what's, what is our framework um, by which we judge if a teaching of our practice is helpful, is useful. And this is the framework that the Buddha offered, was a pragmatic framework. Does it lead in the direction of harm and suffering, or does it lead towards welfare and happiness? And so this was really the point of all his teachings. And it's really a very specific aim, this suffering and the end of suffering. Because there's lots of worthwhile and interesting aims in life. Um, But the Buddha seems to have been, as far as I can tell, pretty singularly focused on this question of suffering and the end of suffering. There's not a lot of teachings where it feels like well, he was just rambling <laughs> because uh, you know something caught his attention and decided to teach on the different um, the different kinds of leaves in the forest. As interesting as that could, could be, and maybe helpful in some ways, um, but he was really interested in this core issue. And there's many teachings that make that point. Um, you know, one famous one is uh, uh, a simile of a burning house. Basically saying, if you're... Or, sorry, I guess one of them is... Uh, I'm getting them mixed up here. But there's one that's definitely an arrow. There's a couple similes of an arrow, but one is... Um, if you're pierced by an arrow, it's not the most relevant question, who shot this arrow? Did they shoot it with a, a large bow or a small bow? The question, you know, it's really, can I take this, um, this arrow out? So there's always that pragmatic, immediate focus. Another teaching that makes this point is um, the Heartwood Sutta, another famous discourse where the Buddha lists um, different benefits that come through practicing mindfulness. Like uh, gain, offerings, and fame, which could come about. Um, virtue, which again is, is important, and the Buddha taught a lot about the importance of virtue and ethical conduct, and also concentration or stability, unification of mind, but he goes through all of those as sort of different layers of a tree. But the heartwood is um, 
Here it's translated as the unprovoked awareness release, which is kind of a mouthful. It's most, more commonly translated as the unshakable deliverance of heart, um, but apparently I just read today that word unshakable is, is more accurately translated as unprovoked. Um, so it sort of, it's not dependent necessarily on anything else. Which is a an interesting point. It's kind of outside of kind of a tangent, but basically saying there are all these benefits, but really the core, the heartwood, is this release of the heart. And um, so another way of saying suffering and the end of suffering. And so this is, you could say, the goal of, of practice, if we want to use that word. And there's a lot of ways that the Buddha described that goal. Um, I have this book here, which is really a wonderful book, The Island, an anthology on the Buddhist teachings on Nibbana. So Nibbana, also in Sanskrit, Nirvana, um, another word, the main word used for the goal of Buddhist practice. Again, the word goal is sort of a funny word to use, but um, but I don't think it's too far off. And But the interesting thing about that word is it means cessation, is one translation. So the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion, the cessation of suffering, peace, bliss, there's many, many words the Buddha used to describe it, most of them in the negative. Um, and the topic of Nibbana is a very interesting and, and deep one. But one way that we can understand it in, in terms of this pragmatic orientation is um, the ending of suffering and the the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion, which is hard to imagine, a human mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion, all trace of greed, hatred, and delusion. But this is what the Buddha called the highest peace. And so we don't have to understand what that would be like. I don't think we can really understand what that would be like completely. We might have a sense of that. We might think that that sounds good, um, but I think even if we, even if it's just theoretical, I think it is helpful. One way or the other, we are going to have views and ideas about why we're why we're meditating, what the point is. So these are these are some of the ideas that are found in in this early Buddhist tradition. And uh, the question, as always, from that pragmatic pragmatic orientation isn't, well, okay, I believe that. The question always is, even with a teaching like that, you know, even thinking about a goal or Nibbana, the question is, what is, is it helpful? Does it, is it inspiring? Does it ring true? Oh, yeah, that sounds nice. And I can sort of see how practicing, getting to know my mind, being mindful could lead in that direction. So again, it's, it's not about, um, yeah, something being true or real, but um, any of these teachings, even these maps, these conceptual maps, 
what effect do they have on our mind? And is it useful or not? It may not be that useful. It may be better to put aside any idea of a goal and just, you know, here and now, practicing, seeing the effects for ourselves, not really concerning ourselves um, with any idea of a goal. So we've talked about um, sort of the orientation of suffering and the end of suffering and one description of where the path is headed. And maybe that sounds, maybe it is inspiring, maybe it does seem like, okay, if that's the, um, if that's the map, if that's the destination, okay. I could get on board for, for peace. <laughs> um, then the next question might be, well, someone's teaching, um, someone's teachings are oriented towards peace. They, um, they promise peace in a sense. They promise that if practiced, they will lead in that direction. Well, then the next question we might ask is, what, how does that work? What are, the, what are the practices and how do they lead towards peace? What is, what is the how? So we have sort of the, uh, the description of how we go about, that it's pragmatic, that it's about suffering and the end of suffering. And then we would ask, well, yeah, what is, what is the method? And... Um, here in early Buddhism, and I think in all, in all traditions of Buddhism, I think share the Noble Eightfold Path as a description of an all-encompassing path that includes really all parts of our life. And that is the, the how. That's what, when we practice this, the, um, the promise is that it leads in the direction of more happiness and peace and less less suffering and conflict internally and externally. So I won't go into the Noble Eightfold Path in detail, but I'll just read the eight path factors. Um, so each one is prefaced by the word in Pali, Samma, which can be translated as right or as wise. Um, but really, again, it, in the context of the whole Buddha's approach, what it, what it means is it's the kind of view or speech or action that leads in the direction of happiness and freedom and away from suffering and harm. So the eight factors are right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So I think just one notable piece of this Noble Eightfold Path, which, you know, is really, there's so much there. It's really a, a lifetime, maybe lifetimes of exploration. But what's, what I find just immediately notable and beautiful about just the list is that it is, it does seem to encompass all of our life and is not ex- exclusive to what we might think of as more refined states or just about meditation. It's how we live our lives. 
who we are as a person on a conventional level, how we think, what, what our thoughts are, and then view you know, how, we, how we look at the world, how we make sense of the world, that that also is relevant. So from the most subtle of the, the wisdom aspects, which are the first two of um, view and intention, so how we see the world, and then from how we see the world, what intentions arise in our mind, to how we take action, how we speak, how we make a living, that all of that is relevant, as it is probably clear to us. That's relevant in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. How we spend our time affects our mind. Um, you know, like I, I play, I have a hobby, I have a couple hobbies I'm pretty into, like birding and uh, playing board games and uh, because I, because those are my activities and I spend time interested in them, they affect my mind. They affect the intentions that arise in my mind. Um, I think they're pretty neutral. <laughs> Maybe even wholesome in some ways. But definitely I've gotten obsessive about both of those hobbies. So just, you know, that all of this, it all matters. It all lays down patterns and habits in our minds. And then the last three are um, more directly sort of working with the mind, mindfulness, uh, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. So, again, if we're sort of assessing um, how a path might lead to happiness in the deepest sense, then to me at least it makes sense that this path as it's laid out, at least just this in these broad strokes, uh, is really encompassing. To me that really makes it feel trustworthy that someone, you know, even someone, you know, as renowned as the Buddha 2,600 years and the teachings are still practiced, they're still respected. But he didn't, uh, he didn't seem to elevate, you know, that only one aspect of life, only the most refined aspect of life is worth attention, you know. The teachings really get into the into the details of life, into the humanness of life, into relationship. You know, there's a whole, so many beautiful teachings on ethical conduct because it matters, because it matters to ourselves and to others, to this question of suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha, during his 40 years of teaching, oversaw the creation of um, this monastic lineage and had all, you know, people practicing in his you know, practicing his teachings in different parts, and uh, and they got into trouble. They <laughs> they you know had ethical breaches, and so the Buddha was really engaged. He was really you know. There's a one story of uh, monks who were living, and there was a monk who was sick, and and he was sort of neglected, maybe because the monks thought. They had better things to do, like meditate. I don't know. But the Buddha admonished them and, and, uh, and uh, told them to take care of their, uh, their brother. 
So, yeah, I just want to make that point that and if we're sort of um, evaluating a path, for me at least, it's always been important, you know, when I first started practicing and you know, checked out Common Ground, I think this is something the Buddha also advised, you know, if we're sort of checking out teachers, uh, you know, we're not just checking out what they say, but how they are, what they do, how they live their lives. For me, that's always been important um, because, yeah, any any part of our life that we're sort of, where we're siloing, saying, oh, this is the spiritual part of my life and this isn't, that, uh, that creates stress in the mind and... Um, yeah, and it limits, it limits our own sense of what's possible in terms of freedom, and it also, yeah, it can create, it can justify maybe unskillful behavior if we're not including everything in our path. Another um, broad way the Buddha described his path is as the middle way. And uh, the middle way in particular between indulging, you could say, or just being obsessed with or prioritizing sense pleasure. So that's one extreme, one way that we could orient in our lives, that people do orient in their lives, how to maximize the pleasantness of life. And then on the other side, maybe people uh, trying that finding that it's limited and sort of wanting to reject sense experience or sense pleasure. And, um, and so like in the Buddhist time, there were ascetics who really saw, well, that's the way is to mortify, self-mortification, these ascetic practices, not eating. So the Buddha is sort of saying that neither of these is going to lead to freedom. Sense indulgence is limited depriving the body of what it needs doesn't lead necessarily to the deepest happiness. And I think this is an interesting kind of another broad stroke, just sort of orienting what is this path towards peace and freedom that the Buddha laid out. Because it, it, uh, it sort of hints at a different orientation towards sense experience than is usual. I think probably more common is the attitude of wanting to maximize pleasure. Um, But also in religious circles or in spiritual circles, we can see the attitude more explicitly or just implicitly sort of a negation of like sense experience is bad somehow. And... uh, just that the Buddha named these and said that ne- it's his, his way is neither of those, I think, is interesting. Because we might think that it has to be one or the other. Uh, either sense experience is here for me to enjoy, and that's the point of life, or sense experience uh, isn't worth my attention and... Um, sort of a negative view of it. And in either case, we're sort of um, caught up in sense 
whether we're pushing it away or whether we're holding on to it. Either way, we're sort of defining our lives that my life's relevance and importance, the meaning of it, is defined by sense experience, sense pleasure, which is sort of ordinarily that's how we, we orient. It's just, I mean, it's, it's these sense experience, obviously, is relevant. But the Buddha's saying that his way towards freedom and happiness isn't so dependent on either of these views, either of these ways of relating to sense experience. And, he does, and, and then he says, well, what is the way? And he lays out the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, so we, we live in the, the world of sense experience, and we're finding a middle way between indulging in, in it and negating it, and that's the Noble Eightfold Path. So I think it's sort of a, a mysterious term even, this middle way, because he doesn't come right out and say, well, the middle, it's not even that the middle way is halfway between, <laughs> like, uh, you know, moderation. I don't really think that's what he means. I think it's, it's a different orientation, which, um, yeah, I mean, the way I would describe it is... Uh, There's a term in, in, in early Buddhism of unworldly happiness, which is happiness that isn't about sense experience. And I think we all know this, even something like uh, the happiness of generosity or the happiness of metta, which is uh, kindness. Now, these kinds of happiness are more satisfying than sense experience. So it's really, it's really a wisdom path, ultimately, because the world of sense experience is what it is. There's pleasant, there's unpleasant. The Buddha is saying the middle way is not getting so caught up in that. So then what is it then that frees the mind? It's the view in the mind, the way of relating to this world, this nature that we're in. And that the basic teaching, which maybe we're all familiar with, that sort of, again, is a broad outline of identifying, well, what is, if it's a wisdom path, what's the basic problem? We're looking for, we're looking for happiness. We're not saying that happiness is about getting what I want or getting rid of what I don't want. And it's not about negating that whole pursuit, but it's about something else. Maybe it's about wisdom, the way the mind interprets and makes sense of the world, that there's something off there that makes things a little uncomfortable. And so just in the last couple minutes, I'll just briefly go through um, the Four Noble Truths, which maybe you've all heard. But this is sort of laying out uh, this... um, Yeah, what what the predicament is and what the prognosis is. So it is, it's kind of a medical analogy. 
So the first is the uh, prog or the diagnosis. So what what's the problem? Problem is that there's stress in life. That there's suffering. So the word is dukkha and poly. Um, yeah, there's this sense of being either slightly or very ill at ease in life, uncomfortable, unsettled, disturbed. So however we might articulate that, suffering, I mean, from in its most grossest aspects, suffering. And that this is relevant. And then the second is uh, the that the cause is craving. I'll just read here from the sutta. The craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there. In other words, craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. So this is where this stress, this unease comes from, is an activity in the mind of craving. Craving sensuality, craving becoming, craving non-becoming. And then the third is the uh, prognosis that there is, there is a cessation of stress, which is the uh, renunciation, release, and letting go of that craving. And then the fourth is there's a path that, that leads to the cessation of stress, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. So just to, to wrap things up and then we can open it up for, for discussion. Um, any of these maps that I've laid out, uh, again, I think should be regarded from that pragmatic view of does this illuminate something that is onward leading, um, not is this something that's true, that's to be believed, um, but like the teaching on craving, that craving is the cause of stress and suffering. That's an interesting idea. And so the question is, uh, what effect does it have to contemplate that and to practice it? Because they're not just things to be believed, but each of the four has an action with it. So stress should be understood, craving should be abandoned, Cessation should be realized and the path should be developed. In summary, and and two, yeah, just to make that point, because even in in what I laid out, that's a lot. There's a lot of thoughts. There's a lot of words, and it can seem like the Buddha is trying to describe something and sort of. Um, yeah, sort of have it. it. It is a concept, and it does make sense, and it is logical, and it and it uh, it's beautiful in a way, in that conceptual way. Um, but I think also, if you read a lot of the teachings, like at, at times it can feel like, well, where do you start? And like, it doesn't all. Uh, it's not, in my understanding, it's not trying to be a description of reality. Again, it's. Um, 
Skillful means it's uh, to be used and seen what the effect is and seen um, if it leads in the direction of happiness and, and more openness of heart. Um, and that can help too, I think, because then we can feel less like, yeah, we have to um, hold on to the teachings or have them all, have it all figured out like as if there was a start and an end and you just... Because they, it's you can approach them at, from different places or at different times. Different ones may be helpful. Um, different maps, different teachings. So, yeah. So maybe just ending by going back to that, to the beginning of really the Buddha's encouragement that uh, you know at one point I think it was maybe at the end of his life he said, "Be a lamp unto yourself." So we all have some you know seed of wisdom and it's really that that we want to rely on and it's sort of like all these teachings they're just tools they're available but really it's we have to pick them up look at them see if they make sense see how they see how they apply and and see what direction it leads in This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.